I don't feel old. I'm not 65 in my mind. I'm not 65 in terms of my, you know, certainly my work ethic, but you know, it's it's fun. I've got the best job in the world. I, I get to listen to people tell me their dreams and I get a chance to help enable them. Okay, how good does that get? What you studied in uni or in school 20, 30, 40 years ago doesn't equip you to deal with reality as it is today. Everybody has to reinvent themselves. I realize that what we've done is scratch the surface, that this Technology revolution is still in early days, and I feel empowered as a result of what's happened over the last year and excited about trying to take it now, you know, through the decade to the next level. Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I get to understand more about how you define and achieve success. Is it about good ideas, great leadership, luck, or a combination of all of those? Helping me cut my way through this conundrum on this edition of the program is John Medved. John is the CEO of Our Crowd. Our Crowd is an Israeli-based investment platform with particular interest in high-tech startups, early-stage companies, and venture funds. Our Crowd is currently managing $1.5 billion worth in funds invested in about 240 startup companies and venture funds. John is a leading light on the Israeli high-tech scene, which has gained global renown. The country has the third most companies listed on the US exchange, the NASDAQ, after the US and China. And just putting that in context, it only has a population of 9 million people. John's own story parallels that of his country's rise. He grew up in a Jewish home in California and was a teenage rebel protesting against the Vietnam War in the 1970s. In a further act of rebellion against expectations, he moved to Israel, where he was initially involved in youth work and tour guiding. But John spotted the potential of Israel's then embryonic high-tech scene. He established and built several technology startups, and in 1995, he set up one of Israel's earliest investment funds, Israeli Seed Partners, in a garage with a couple of colleagues, and he grew it to a concern worth over a quarter of a billion dollars. I trust, John, that I've got that all right. That's correct. Welcome to the podcast, John. It's great to be here, Richard. Thank you for having me. So, John, I'm fascinated. How does someone travel the journey from, from protesting the Vietnam War in, in the Bay Area in the 70s to becoming a, a high-tech mogul in the Middle East? Look, the, the, the reality is that today it's all about reinvention. If you can't reinvent yourself repeatedly, you're going to have issues because the world changes. And what you studied in uni or in school 20, 30, 40 years ago doesn't equip you to deal with reality as it is today. Everybody has to reinvent themselves. So uh, what was lucky for me is that I came from a place, California, which was really into reinvention. My parents both fled from more traditional Jewish cities in the East Coast of the U.S. They came out to the you know brave new world of California. My father was a rocket scientist. He was a a technically trained scientist, PhD in physics, okay. and worked during 
the day and late afternoon, early evening would surf. Okay, my mother was a biochemist, okay, who then became a school teacher. And all around me, you know, growing up in the 60s, this was about, you know, creating new ways of everything. And so that was sort of in the air. And I, I went off to Berkeley and uh, uh, found myself in Israel because that was the only place that my parents would pay for me to spend a summer vacation <laughs> in 1973 before the war. And it blew my mind. It really, to use a, a phrase appropriate of the time, it was in, extraordinary. And I connected to my history and my identity, I guess, in ways that I hadn't really foreseen. I ended up learning Hebrew, visited Israel, you know, at least once a year for about a decade until I finally decided to uh, come in and live here permanently. And when I got here, I was figuring that I was going to, you know, do Jewish work because my degree was in Jewish history at the University of California. But I was saved from that fate by my father, who enters the story again, shows up on a business trip and asks me to accompany him to some uh, missile uh, people up at an institute called Raphael. So we drove up there. And my dad at that point was developing a very exciting early startup in the field of fiber optic communications. He had six people in our garage, sort of a family tradition. And ultimately, at the end of this meeting, which I was bored to tears because I couldn't understand a word they were, even though they were speaking English, they were speaking <laughs> tech English. At the end of this, one of the guys turns to me and says, okay, young Medved, what are you doing here in Israel? And I told him, and he looked at me and said, what a complete waste. <laughs> I felt like slapped in the head. And I said, what do you mean a waste? You know, how come you're not dancing the aura with me and saying- Because you, 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 were, you were idealistic and you'd come there to, to yeah. give of yourself to, to the young Jewish state yeah. kind of thing. And he, and he looks at me and he says, you don't get it. What your father's doing is what we need. We need fiber optics. We need entrepreneurs. Go help your dad. Stop messing around. And this was 1982, which was four years before the first venture capital fund was even established. No one knew what startups were. And by the end of my father's week trip, he agreed to pay me the princely sum of $100 a month so that I would keep in touch with these guys at Raphael and at other Israeli defense companies so maybe he could get some business. And that's how I started. And uh, make a long story short, we built a successful company. I raised him capital, and we ultimately sold that company to Amoco, which is today British Petroleum, in a, my first exit. And that was it. And then I was off, you know, and then I, then I did a software startup. Then I built a venture capital fund, another software startup. And today I run Israel's most active venture capital platform. I mean, you make it sound straightforward, like linear. I'm sure it doesn't quite work like that but I, <laughs> you, you figure <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what what tells me that but but also what are the skills i mean that you john medved do you think brought you know from you either your academic background or your personal background that equipped you to begin to get involved in in this kind of young high-tech sector and, and and investing in companies and so on what was it that you brought what i brought was an ability to dream, to organize, to sell ideas or big picture concepts. I mean, I was an organizer 
on the campus. I had to, you know, uh, essentially my first job or someone paid me some money was organizing Jewish students on the college campuses when it wasn't, you know, as it is today, the easiest job to convey sort of uh, why this is important. And I learned how to organize demonstrations and meetings and seminars and put together in those days what looked like leaflets. And many of those skills, which were essentially marketing and sales skills, and I actually learned how to fundraise because all of these events needed funding. And I had to approach philanthropists to give me money. And they wanted to know what the return on investment was. So it turns out that a lot of the skills that I had developed in you know, student activity, in the youth movement, in terms of ideas and history, I was able to use. Now, of course, I taught myself and was uh, fortunate to have lots of informal teachers about technology, not to the point where I would ever be a circuit designer, but that I could understand it. Because today, we're all involved in technology, right? In other words, I think the mistake that many people make is they think that tech is somehow alien to their lives. It's integral in everything that we do. So I just sort of accepted that. I got a lucky break from my father who gave me, you know, a start and, and, and never felt particularly scared. I mean, I think the other thing is Israel is sort of a no-fear culture, okay? We're risk-accepting. We are pioneering and dreaming and the idea of starting something new and God forbid failing, big deal. Okay, that's part of our culture. And I experienced this and never knew better to not try to do this stuff. You touch upon there this this phenomenon of of the Israeli high tech sector, and I cited there in the introduction this you know the extraordinary standing of Israel's high tech companies. A lot's been written about it, and asked the question why. From your vantage point, I mean, how has this country been able to curate and produce such success in high tech? Well, I mean, I think the the, the first question, if I can, sort of counter you with a, a more basic question, is what is with the Jews? Okay. I mean, you know, go back thousands of years and say, look at this people, you know, we've been pretty much stable in our population for several thousand years, which is in itself a feat. On the one hand that we didn't disappear, on the other hand, that we're not a billion people, but the way we should be if we'd grown our population. But we've stayed this sort of little curiosity of 10 or 15 million people, more or less from inception, and look at what we've done. Don't just look at the Bible and monotheism and, and great morality, but look, you know, in the last 100 or 200 years, in terms of people of Jewish origin, in terms of Nobel Prizes and great business fortunes and playwrights and, and you name it, how do you explain that? And so once you actually sit down and look at that, then I think the leap, the causal leap to the Jewish state outperforming on every index, whether it's life expectancy or happiness or high-tech prowess, is not a large leap, right? In other words, you know, if the Jewish state was sort of an also-ran, a laggard in this area, that would have been surprising. You know, we were very lucky to start as a socialist country, okay, in terms of nation building, and that gave us a good healthcare system and uh, good universal education mm. 
and a variety of you know, strong democracy, but we've moved now into being robust, enthusiastic capitalists who are taking the most you know, exciting form of capitalism and developing it further, which is the startup economy. Now, looking at our crowd, our crowd, of course, it doesn't just invest in Israeli companies, it invests in other companies. So, I mean, I find that also curious that, and we talk about the strengths of the Israeli high tech, but here it's it's the further evolution of it, isn't it? It's you're using your own expertise to look out and beyond Israeli high tech to see what else is out there and invest in opportunities around the globe. Well, see, first of all, the, the whole purpose of our crowd was to democratize access to the venture capital asset class. And that's a bunch of jargon, you know, buzzword compliance. Yeah, break, break that jargon down for me, John. Break it down. <laughs> but the, the reality is that in the past, you could wait for a great tech company to uh, go public and then, you know, invest in it. If you had done so 30, 40 years ago in Apple, in Microsoft, in Amazon, in Oracle, in Salesforce, you've made fortunes, right? These are companies that have just provided unbelievable returns. The problem is today it doesn't work that way because companies wait much longer to go public. And when they go public, they go public at huge amounts. So the people who are making the money are those who are engaged in the venture capital or the private market investing, the startups, the guys who come in at the seed level. For most of us, and even if you're a wealthy person, you're you know, successful real estate guy or diamond guy or doctor or whatever you do, you're just not invited to this party. This is a party which has been pretty much a closed affair in Silicon Valley and a few other outposts like Israel. But for most of us, you know, no can do. And mm-hmm. so we set up our crowd to open it up, to basically take the expertise that myself and my team had developed over decades and say, let's go create a democratic platform so that everybody can either pick companies or pick funds and not have to write a $5 million or $10 million check, which for some of us is aspirational only and not reality, but to be able to write a $10,000 check or in a single company or a $50,000 check into a fund. And that was the essentially the, the core principle of our crowd. We started by offering access to Israeli investments. It's where we are. It's a great source of deal flow. But as we built this platform and expertise and we got literally tens of thousands of qualified accredited investors around the world to join us, they started saying, wait a minute, what about deals that we're involved in, in our home countries, in Silicon Valley, in London, in, in, in China, et cetera? And we said, we'd love to look at them. And so we've built this platform to be truly global, but we're a fintech, right? We have uh, about 35 programmers who are busy at work as we speak, coding the plumbing that allows us to both access deals and investors around the world to provide a truly democratic platform that allows people to invest, but more importantly, to provide added value to the entrepreneurs. Because today, To get into a good deal, you have to not just be able to show up with a check. You've got to be able to add value. You've got to help these companies figure out how to get to market, how to meet partners, how to raise more money, how to get on the media, how to recruit people. And by having this mass of investors around the world, we act as a force multiplier for these entrepreneurs. 
How do you spot those companies that you think are going to be successful? What are you looking for? One word, passion. Not expertise. You said passion. No, passion. I mean, look, expertise is useful and important, okay? And especially if you're going after deep tech, which we do much of that in our crowd, looking at, you know, artificial intelligence-driven medical devices or digital health. And obviously you need deep expertise. But the difference between the great scientist who's sitting in a lab working on something and the person who actually builds the company often is not defined by a college degree. And whether you look at Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or other, these are notorious dropouts, but they had passion and vision. And it's always in the early stages in particular, but even through the late stage, it's about the people. And as much as you look at the market and the technology and the product idea, you're looking at the team that are coming to you and what their, their backgrounds and their, and really their passion is all about. How do you curate that passion and translate it into success? Let's say you see the raw materials of someone who is who may have potentially a great product or a great idea, and they're very passionate, but you can also see flaws in them. What do you bring? What does your team therefore bring? And what do you say to these people? Well, first of all, you, you need to spend real time with them. And it can't be yet reduced to a algorithm or a algorithmic trading kind of mechanism. It's, it's really about eating with them if you can, or spending you know today endless time on Zoom and trying to understand what makes them tick. It also means picking up the phone and calling people, you know, getting references, not only supplied by the entrepreneurs, but, you know, where you're utilizing your network to find out what this guy or gal was like in college or in the army or wherever they come from. Then, of course, we do do quite serious work looking at the market, and we have a lot of talent, you know, involved in that. Do we believe that the market opportunity is not just, you know, grabbing market share of a, of a stable or, you know, not a fast growing market, but we look for, you know, markets that are going to be colossal and coming out of nowhere. We look for, you know, where the technology wins are driving. We look at the traction these groups have already. So we are very concerned about finding people who are not just planning to do something, but are already doing it, even at the early stages, right? Are they, are they starting to pull out of the station, as it were? Can we jump on the train and stoke the fire further? Or are you know, they waiting for us to give them their first money so they can begin? Anybody who's waiting, they're not getting a penny from me. Hmm. You mentioned there about the importance of kind of breaking bread with people, you know, sitting down, uh, looking into the whites of their eyes. And I mean, you have these huge hour crowd, how can I describe it? Conferences, gatherings where thousands of people gather in Jerusalem from all over the globe. In this age where, I mean, we're talking on Zoom and no one needs to get on a flight anymore to, to have a meeting. How relevant is that kind of gathering, the hour crowd kind of gatherings, do you think, to continuing to do what you do? I think it's very important. We've moved it as much as we can to the virtual world. We are having literally between three and five virtual events every week. The problem is that it, it's not 100% translatable. Maybe I'm just too old and not young enough to see the, 
the brilliance of the totally virtual world. But I, I miss the physical contact. I miss the hug. I miss the handshake. I miss the smelling, you know, sometimes always not good, but you know, I, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, I just, I want that people contact. I find it hard to navigate without it. On the other hand, what's, then this is what's remarkable about Israel's performance in terms of attracting funds this year. You know, Israel is dependent on about 90% of its funding come from overseas. And it continues not just to flow as it has in the past, but it's accelerated over Zoom, which is, you know, maybe it's this lack of smell. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is generational. Maybe, you know, as you say to you, to me, people of a certain certain age, there is a necessity to get together, but maybe we're missing a trick here, right? Well, look, I mean, we're doing, the, uh, I think, a very good job in terms of dancing with the, uh, the beat of the current zeitgeist. But my, my sense is that, you know, it will never go back to the status quo ante, right? In other words, mm-hmm. there was, you know, you have to forget in your mind what life was like before this crisis, because this crisis has changed the world fundamentally, and there is no going back. But we'll go forward to something new, which hopefully will reintegrate elements of that personal connection. I will be devastated if that's not the case. I'm confident that it will be the case. But on the other hand, the digital world doesn't give up territory which it's conquered. Okay, And whether it's in e-commerce or in distance learning or work from home, these are changes that are with us now forever. Ultimately, the lesson that we learn from this is that we have enormous capability. The fact that we were able as a civilization to get a a virus vaccine out in less than a year and to start distributing it around, it's it's a miracle. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we need to do to get ready for 2030, right? What are we going to do for this decade to make sure that the next civilizational challenges, planetary challenges can be met. Okay, how are we going to overcome the issues of climate change and hunger and literacy and education? You know, for me, it gets me going because I realize that what we've done is scratch the surface, that this technology revolution is still in early days. And I feel empowered and excited about trying to take it now you know, through the decade to the next level. What strikes me, John, in, in listening to you is like you're you're 65 years of age, and, and you talked about passion, but there's no um, there's no sign that your own personal passion and professional passion is is waning at all. If anything, you sound more fired up. I'm pretty fired up. Look, I don't I don't feel old. I'm not 65 in my mind. I'm not 65 in terms of my you know certainly my work ethic, but you know, it's, it's fun. I've got the best job in the world. I get to listen to people tell me their dreams and I get a chance to help enable them. Okay. How good does that get? And I think that it keeps me positive about the world. I'm, I'm nervous because I know too much about some of the dangers and the scary stuff, but I'm ultimately an optimist. I think that my business is not for pessimists. Okay. You know, if you're, if you're pessimistic, you're not going to take these wild risks and you have to figure out how to mitigate them, how to invest in portfolios, how to add value. Okay. Because, you know, in our business, 
insider information is completely legal and desirable, right? These aren't public companies. You have to be an insider. You have to get involved, you know, get real full body contact with the entrepreneurs and help them. And I find this whole thing just invigorating and wonderful. And I feel like I've had a storybook life, but I'm hoping the story is only halfway done and I'll be able to make it to 120 as we often wish each other in, in our tradition. John, I wish you well. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. So that was John Medved. And there's a word in Yiddish, chutzpah. And it can mean nerve, to have a nerve, to be cheeky. But it also implies something else, which means to kind of go out on a limb and go to places and think of things which no one has ever done before. And there's a certain cheekiness in that. And the word chutzpah in this context, I think, applies to John Medved. He went out to Israel many years ago as a kind of idealistic kid, young person. And he turned himself within the space of a couple of decades into this high-tech mogul, in effect, because he took a pioneering spirit. He went with it. He, he says so himself. He refused to see failure as failure. He saw that failure or something not working out is just part of a learning experience. And that's something, that sense of chutzpah, I think, is something that he also looks for in other people, in cultivating other people's success and, and finding other successful projects. And that, to me, is, is one of the very striking things about John Medved. If you've enjoyed this edition, then please do listen to others in this series. It includes interviews with, for example a person who was a high-level BBC journalist and went on to become the head of communications for Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London, a woman who began her journey into both public service and into becoming the CEO of major corporations when she sat around the kitchen table with her father and her sister deciding about decisions, including how they should spend household money. And also the man who's referred to as the Mark Zuckerberg of Norway. They're just a few examples of the kind of people that I've been talking to on this podcast. Anyway, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please do share and rate this series. I'm Richard Myron. The producers on this edition have been Anouk Mie and Rob Dean. And this is an Earshot Strategies production. All the best.